to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, podcast brought to you by Kairos Partnerships. Bob, how are you doing today? I am doing well. It is good to see you uh, across. We can't say the airwaves anymore because it's that's not how this works. But it, it it's amazing to me that uh, we can both sit behind our microphones and talk, and I can see you and you can see me, even though everybody else can't see us because it's not a video podcast. But here we, we are. are. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think if this was a video podcast, there'd be a good chance that people would start funds for like, hey, Bob and Doug look like they're homeless. Maybe we should like <laughs> I, I just love that that every time I see you in your recording studio, which is your basement office, I think about Doctor Strange and in the latest Spider-Man movie, his basement like laboratory. It just it reminds me so much. Like if there was a glowing circle that opened up behind you and somebody stepped through, I would not bat an eye. That would make perfect That's sense. Actually good. I feel yeah. really good about that. I mean, I think, well, I, I think that segue is great into our conversation today about magic and how it actually works. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, but honestly, I think what's really cool is we use technology to make this show happen. And yeah. my guest today is going to be talking a lot about how technology forms us, sort of the, it, it's, it's a very nuanced conversation. And so, yeah, Bob, like, Talk to me about your relationship with technology. I know that's a huge open-ended question, but like, how are you formed? How have you been deformed by it? Well, I I love thinking about it because uh, I am Generation X. And one of the things that that means is that I didn't have a cell phone in high school. We didn't have like, the people had VCRs, but I grew up with grandparents. I was raised by my grandparents. We didn't have one until my late teens. Um, my first computer was an Apple TI 99-4A that you had to put a cartridge in that had the OS on it, the, the basic. And if you were really cool, you got extended basic. And I mean, it was just, it was a different world. And so, I, you know, some of the... As I got into pastoring, uh, getting excited about new technology, I still remember the long fight and discussion about can we move from the overhead projector with the transparencies to getting uh, an LCD projector that we can project with. And like, this was a big deal and it was a huge investment. And this was like... And now so much of technology is just embedded into not only our lives, but into the lives of our community, that our communities, we just don't even really think about it, you know? And what I like about the conversation um, that we had with Jay and the books that he's written, uh, he and others have done a good job of just helping us to take a step back and think like, yeah, technology, it's there we we use it we make use of it but how does that shape us how does that form us you know like just for for instance we moved from overhead projector to lcd projector never thinking that 20 years later the result might possibly be that people don't really bring their bibles to church anymore you know who could have seen that coming that 
us putting the words up there, maybe as an act of hospitality to to newcomers or to people who aren't familiar with scripture, would kind of change how we go to church, you know, the unintended consequences. So I, I love books like this. I love conversations like this because it gets my, my brain going. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, it's, it's one of those, I feel like this conversation really helps me be thoughtful about how each thing we do, there, there are, there are give and take, there's a give and take with each thing. And yeah. it's almost like, I remember I had a class years ago with um, AJ Swoboda and he talked about playing this game called embedded theology. It's just like, how does, what is the embedded theology of that particular thing? And so we talked about movies and culture and technology and all these, all this other stuff. And it just reminds me of that, that question about the transparencies to the, to the projectors. It's, yeah. It's, it's interesting to think that, you know, or even, even understanding how having a projector in some ways even makes you feel even more, it can make you feel even more isolated because back in the old hymnal day, you know, yeah, you, you had, had to share with somebody. somebody. Yeah. You had to share with someone. I, I, I wonder if, you know, if that actually gave rise to, yeah, whatever. Sorry. I was going to go off on a completely ridiculous tangent, but I feel like, even in that, there was such a community aspect of sharing, of just being yeah. actually leaning over your friend's shoulder or, you know, probably like great opportunity for young men and women to meet each other and like, oh, you know, how'd you guys meet? Oh, we shared a hymnal. And it's like, oh, that's yep. so cool. Uh, and I actually know people who have said that. Yeah, you know, we went to church and yeah. one day we shared a hymnal and it kind of, some sparks flew and I'm like, I wonder what song you were singing. Maybe it was great as that faithfulness. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I think there's just things like that that I appreciate about this conversation. And I think, too, especially for parents with teenagers or even young children, there's such an important part of this conversation for parents. And, and I think even as yeah. pastors and leaders, how is our technology shaping us? What is it doing to our souls? And yeah. 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 And I like that uh, Jay, he he wrote this, uh, this book uh, about how it's shaping us individually, but there's also just this community aspect to it because I think most of the thinking that goes into technology, is it good? Is it bad? What, what are the unintended uh, impacts of it? We're really thinking about individuals, but rarely do we think about how is a community being shaped? How is this group of people being shaped? Yeah. Yeah, well, we know it's going to be a good one. So we hope you all enjoy the conversation. Our guest today on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast is Jay Kim, and he serves as the lead pastor at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley area of California. He's the author of numerous books, including Analog Church, 40 Days Through the Book Colossians, and his latest, Analog Christian, which is what we're going to be talking uh, to him about today. His written work has also been featured in Christianity Today, in the Gospel Coalition, Missio Alliance, and Relevant Magazine. Uh, and he's been a guest before on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast in 2020. We hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. Jay, it's great to have you here on the Monday Morning Pastor again. Uh, we had you back in June of 2020, which is crazy. 
You just came out with your book, Analog Church. I don't know. Maybe it was a prophetic book that came out just a few <laughs> weeks after the pandemic started. Yeah. Uh, as we all moved to Zoom, you were already talking yes. about some of this stuff. <laughs> just in time for the digital only church. That's yes. Right. Yeah. But thank you again for joining us. We're really glad to have you on. Oh, thank you guys. No, what a joy to be back with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we're continuing to watch pastors struggle in this season and churches as well. And many pastors seem to be tired, overly tired, overly frustrated, on the brink of resignation. Um, would you peel back the curtain a bit and let pastors know how you're doing and what has been keeping you grounded in this season? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, one, that's helpful. Just being asked, to be honest. Mm. I, I think a lot about my conversations with uh, friends who are serving and leading in the local church. And sometimes when I talk to them, it's not even the content of our conversation that is so immensely helpful, although that, that is immensely helpful often. Usually I walk away after the lunch or the coffee feeling like, man, just having someone like a human being with me who is going through a similar sort of unique strangeness uh, and has been for a couple of years now, at least that in and of itself, one helps me feel more human. You know, I just don't feel as odd and strange and alone and isolated. So, uh, you know, that's been helpful. And, and I, I feel really grateful uh, because I am surrounded by, a wonderful circle of pastor friends, you know, both here locally in my city and um, around the country, you know, several that I connect to uh, ironically enough over zoom, <laughs> but um, find it really helpful. So yeah, that's been keeping me grounded, just knowing that, you know, I'm not alone. And then, um, it, you know, the embodied presence of, uh, not only my family and close friends, but for example, it's going to sound like a weird cop out, very church answer, but like our small group, you know, it's so simple that uh, I was just, we just had dinner with one of the young families in our small group this past weekend. And we sat on their back porch for like four hours, just sharing a meal. And again, just feeling normal, you know, feeling human. And so, yeah, those types of things have been really helpful to me, just embodied presence with one another, with people I know and care about, with people who, who sort of understand at a certain level. And, and I say that carefully because I know that there are so many pastors out there who maybe don't have that, you know, um, who are sort of living in isolation. And I, I would just encourage, like... Man, that is the path to to real burnout, you know, to to go it alone. And so, you know, that's one of my prayers actually for for local church leaders these days is just for other humans that care about them to surround them and to surround them well. So yeah. anyways, thanks for asking. I just think people asking, people surrounding me, um, that's what's really in God, God's love and his presence sort of embodied and expressed through real humans in that way. Uh, has been, you know, 
life-changing and life-saving in many ways. Jay, your your previous book was Analog Church, and your new book is called Analog Christian. That feels particularly subversive for a pastor in Silicon Valley to write. Uh, but I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what is an analog Christian, and just how did you come to write this book? What's the story behind it? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I wrote this book primarily... Um, as a sort of uh, prayer, to be honest, I wrote it because I began thinking about years ago, actually, how um, digital technologies in general and social media in particular, how it was having a really formational effect on me and how I, I did not want to be formed in that way and yet found myself being formed in that way. And so I just began thinking, praying, having lots of conversations. I began reading literature about it, not, not just Christian thinkers, but um, just, you know, secular thinkers who have been writing thoughtfully about uh, the formational effects of digital technologies and, and social media. And, um, and then I really began to realize, uh, particularly as the pandemic sort of really isolated us, I began to realize this sort of thing, the sort of deformational effects of um, technology and social media, it was just pervasive in the people that I love and serve here in our church community. So really, secondarily, at first, primarily, I wrote the book as a prayer and as a reminder to myself. But secondarily, I just I wrote it for real people in our church who I, I saw struggling through this strange time in human history that we're in. Um, so yeah, there you go. That's kind of the, the yeah. where the book came from. Yeah. One of your one of your uh, kind of big thesis points is that the problem isn't the technology. So what in your view is is the problem? What are we what are we dealing with? What are we struggling with? Yeah, I think I think the problem is us, you know. I think technology mm. is a tool. So the problem with digital technology uh is a problem sort of the same way that a hammer can be a problem. I don't think any of us would say a hammer is a problem. I don't think any of us would say that intrinsically a hammer is evil and dangerous, but I don't think anybody would argue that a hammer can actually be quite dangerous. Um, but it's not dangerous because of itself. It's dangerous because of, of the potential for misuse. And so I think the same is true of technology. You know, even with all that has been written about sort of the intrinsic ethical or some would argue unethical design of social media, which I actually believe, you know, I, I agree that in many ways there is there is a pretty particular sort of ethics to design that um, can be implemented or intentionally not implemented. And I think when it comes to social media, a lot of the literature, a lot of the research is showing us, you know, there's a, the, the sort of famous whistleblower story from last year, Frances Haugen, who was a part of Facebook, and she came out basically and was like, look, this is intentional. It's by design, you know? So I'm not saying that it's like totally benign. Yes, there is a sort of ethics or some would say a lack of ethics uh, when it comes to the, the design of social media in particular. But even still, I don't think the technology itself is the problem. Uh, it's our use or misuse or abuse of any technology that poses an issue. Um, sadly, I think we're at a point in history 
where uh, we have grown so accustomed to misusing and abusing digital technologies and social media in particular um, that it has to be addressed. Otherwise, we are well on our on our way toward. This sounds hyperbolic, but it's not. Like we are well on our way toward the destruction of um, community, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. particularly for the Christian formational community into Christ likeness. And so yeah. it's something we have to pay attention to. Because that's only, you only get that it, with, in your words, embodied presence. You only get that face to face. I've always said that like uh, d- digital church, v- video venues, like it's just church enough to be dangerous. Mm. You know, it gives you just enough of a feeling of connection without the actual accountability of relationship. I love yeah. that, that, um, metaphor used with the hammer because as you were saying that i was just thinking yeah hammer's great i use one all the time but imagine if i walked around 24 hours a day with a hammer in my hand and i used it for everything that i came across i would gesture with it i would try to pick things up with it like how much damage would i do if i never put that hammer down that's exactly right that's a great analogy yeah absolutely and I, I think it's interesting because reading the book, I, I had a few different lenses that I was thinking through. One is a pastor, one is a person, one is a dad of teenagers, uh, and, 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 you know, and one thinking through like just all the different ramifications of all those different spaces in which I live yeah. and how, um, you know, the digital information world is present in all those spaces. And so I, I would love to hear like, um, how might you think through this or how do you think through this from different perspectives, for instance, as a pastor of a congregation, like what have you noticed in terms of your congregation and and what have you noticed as, as yourself and what have you noticed as a dad? So I'm asking three kind of big questions with, you know, not a ton of time to unpack it, but, <laughs> but, but I, I think that's, I think, I, I hope I'm hitting on something that, that is real in terms of, it's not just like, the internet is this thing that sometimes people engage, but we have to think of it from very different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, when I think about our church and I think about ecclesiology, um, very specifically, I, I do wonder quite a bit and obviously wrote a whole book about how um, there's a lot more to say about it, but I'm trying to be succinct here. I do think a lot about how the internet and the digital age is deforming our ecclesiology into an exchange of content. Like many people in the digital age today, when you, when you say church, they primarily think about content. They're thinking about a preacher and the sermon that that preacher preaches every week or whatever, or they're thinking about music. Um, And in, in such an ecclesiology, it becomes really easy to justify, like you were saying earlier, just online church. Like, well, church is the, is the sermon church is the music. So Mm. I I can watch it online. I could visit if I want to, if it's convenient for me and more dangerously and insidiously, we began thinking about church the way we think about Netflix, which we have this long extended queue of TV shows or movies that, you know, we kind of thought might be interesting. So we click one button, we add it to our queue and then you'd like never get around to it or you start watching a show and 10 minutes in you're kind of bored so what do you do 
you stop watching the show and you just go to the next thing on your queue. And so often that happens with the church. Like we forget that the church is the bride of Christ. It is the body of Christ. It is a family of brothers and sisters who are bound up together by a single father in heaven, not because we're all perfectly compatible, but because God committed himself to us and we are called to commit to him and to one another. And I think we are very quickly losing aptitude for that. And really like misunderstanding what the church really is, that it's a family. It's not a Netflix mm. queue. It's not primarily about content or content consumption. So that's what I think about when I think about the church and uh, the digital age. When I think about my own life, and this is connected to my life as a dad, you know, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, we do, we limit their screen time quite a bit. You know, they're, mm. they're never, I mean... Other than flights, long flights, we just flew to New York, uh, you know, five and a half, six hour flight um, this summer. So, yes, we pulled out the iPad and let them watch a couple of movies. You can judge me all you want, but um, it was an enjoyable. Well, that was that was more for the people sitting around them yes. as well as for them yes. and, and your sanity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's very rare. They never touch the iPad at home. Uh, we let them watch one movie a week on our smart TV, you know, um, but they don't, we don't let them touch our phones or anything like that, you know, but because our kids are seven and four, I will readily admit, I, I have very little expertise in this area. Um, hmm. I'm just learning and studying what I will say as it pertains to my personal life, I try to model, um, uh, digital health. So uh, my friend Andy Crouch has been really helpful in this area. I know you guys both are familiar with Andy. Um, you know, his book, TechWise Family, which actually has some really practical nuggets, you know, that we've implemented into our home. So our phones are not in our bedrooms. They are in a little docking station in our kitchen, uh, not around mm -hmm. the dining table, but literally like in our kitchen on the counter where we, you know, keep our keys essentially. So we try to have as, as limited of a digital space, a digital sort of presence when we're together in our home as possible. We practice digital Sabbath in our family. So, you know, one hour a day, one day a week, it's usually Saturdays. Um, we take our kids on a hike every Saturday morning uh, without our digital devices, just to get them out and about uh, experiencing a long sort of nature experience without anything technological mm -hmm. we don't need our phone at that point because uh, we go on the same couple of trails every weekend and uh, we know the trail and we're with each other and like the only person who would ever need to contact me in an emergency are right there with me on the trail <laughs> so um, we try to do those sorts of things uh, and, and um, you know I don't have any I'm just trying to be as practical as possible here I don't have any notifications on my phone. Uh, so Ooh. if you text me, um, I don't see it on my phone. I have to literally open my phone. Uh, I don't have any notifications for, you know, any social media things. Um, in fact, I deleted social media from my phone, which was a total game changer, actually. Um, I've reinstalled one thing in particular, mostly because uh, at my publisher's behest, you know, <laughs> you know, when you write a book, you got to start. Uh, posting about it, which I'm happy to do. I totally understand that. So, um, 
Yeah, there you go. I, I just try to limit digital digital presence in my life as much as possible. Um, so I don't know how helpful or not helpful that is, but there you go. Oh, that's it's super helpful. And uh, I think for many of us who have kids, super aspirational, like I'm feeling bad. Just <laughs> just listening well, to how kid, well. No, it's because my kids <laughs> are young. It's my kids are young. Yeah. You can ask yeah. me again when they're teenagers and we'll see how yeah. I'm doing, you know, so. So uh, I I know you dealt with with this in your in your first book, uh, and so maybe this is is a great chance to plug Analog Church. But I I really uh, the the first part of that question I'd like to go just a little bit deeper. How how do you see digital technologies forming us as churches? Like how are you, you mentioned? Uh, I don't think you use the word malforming, but that that they have this potential to shape us in the wrong ways. Yeah. How do you see that working out on a like a community? wide basis for a church? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, what I said earlier, I think is one of the primary ways it's teaching us that church is content and that church yeah. uh, is about consuming good content, which then makes us um, consumers, not participants. So yes. most people, I would say, think about church again as a sort of Christian marketplace where they go to get the best deal on the best product, you know, and that's just biblically speaking, that is not what the church is. Never has mm. been, never will be. Is there content in the church? Well, yeah, of course there's a sermon and yes, there are songs. Uh, and is that content helpful? Yeah, absolutely. But the content is itself is not the church, you know, um, mm. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is because we have begun seeing the church as content to consume and begun sort of subtly believing that we are consumers in a Christian marketplace, it's made us immensely impatient and um, mm. non-committal. And I think a lot, you know, um, I think it was Ed Stetzer who wrote during the pandemic about uh oh gosh i forget what he called it like the great shift or something like that he was talking about how many people were like hopping churches you know and church shopping <clears throat> and listen I'm, I'm not bash it's not like baby out with the bathwater. yes there is a time and a place to prayerfully thoughtfully consider god which community are you calling me to um but that's a very different prayer than Hey, which church has the best sermon or the mm. the best coffee or the best looking hipsters where I can feel young and cool? You know, like that's a very different conversation than asking God, God, which community are you calling me to commit myself to, to embed myself mm. with, to serve and come alongside, to suffer with, to journey with? You know, that those are very different sort of modes of approaching. Um, which church community you're going to sort of local church community you're going to belong to. So I think all of those things and so much more is happening. We're just, we're beginning to see the church as a marketplace and we're looking for compatibility and fit rather than hmm. um, prayerfully considering uh, where we ought to commit, where the spirit of God might be leading us um, to commit yeah. to. 
Yeah. Um, uh, Shane Hips had a book uh, about 10 or 15 years ago called Fl- Flickering Pixels. Yes. And uh, he made the point that technology always reverses back on itself. Yeah. That it ultimately when it plays out, what it does is it does the opposite of what it was intended to do. Like yeah. email was made to ease communication, but now we're all flooded with so much that yes. we lose track of conversations and we yeah. can, it's like, we can't talk to anybody anymore. And as I think about church community, I think too, it's not just the, the online experience of church. It goes down to, you look around on Sundays, how many people have their Bibles and yeah. part of that is because they don't need to. The words are up there on the screen. Yeah. You know, um, there used to be a sense of I we had somebody in our church uh, that when we introduced uh, electronic giving, they kind of pushed back. And it wasn't because they didn't like the idea. It was because they saw it as part of their worship was to get up. And to give in that yeah. in sometime during the the gathering when they were moved, and so even when they did it on their phone, they were intentional. I'm not going to do it at home. I'm going to do it in the oh, gathering yeah. during a worship song. That's cool. uh, as as part of my worship. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I wonder just as you're thinking about techno technological use in in your own church, like how does your church uh, how you're in Silicon Valley all these tech people. So how do you, how have you thought to minimize the kind of that malformation of what are some of the ways that you have as a pastor led into uh, using technology, not misusing it and not allowing it to misshape your community? Yeah. You know, um, a paradigm that's been helpful for me is that technology and digital technology in particular is a fantastic medium for the exchange of information. So that's sort of a paradigm for us. We, we use digital technology. We have, you know, emails and social media and uh, a website, and you can watch our service online, although that's a point of conversation right now. Do we want to, mm. uh, at, at what point do we want to minimize that or shut it down completely? We're talking about that right now, but, um, but, Uh, We try to communicate in a very outward-facing way. We don't use that language, but we try to communicate in a very outward-facing way that essentially anything digital, we're getting you information, data, content, and that stuff is good. Like, it's not bad. It's helpful. It's necessary. You you need to know what time to show up and what the address is, you know, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also try to communicate very clearly that uh, information is not transformation. And our mm-hmm. ultimate goal is that we all collectively, as the people of God, be transformed into the image of the risen Christ, that we look transformationally become more and more the person God has called us to be, each and every one of us, and the people God has called us to be together. So we try to communicate that in just really practical ways. So we say, you know, like, here's the information we would love to see you at whatever, mm. or we would love for you to plug in to a small group here or a mid-sized group there. So we put a lot of energy into that. Um, we're a fairly large church. So we do understand that the big room on a Sunday is not where transformation typically happens. 
Um, so we try to emphasize at our church, especially in the summer, we do something called meetups. We do it all throughout the year, but in the summer, it becomes our main point of emphasis. So every week there's like two, three, four different things you can go to. And the expectation is not that everyone's going to go to everything. We just try to create as many spaces as possible. They're typically like affinity based, uh, where you can show up. So like this Sunday, uh, I'm, I'm host co-hosting a meetup with another one of our pastors at our local soccer teams game. And we have like 30, Mm. 30 people that are going to come. And we're just going to watch soccer game and sit with one another in the sun, share a meal, laugh, and just not do it online. You know, so uh, my wife and I just hosted one three weeks ago for young families at a park. They're like, you know, 30 families with a bunch of their kids just running around, getting dirty on a playground. And we ate cheap pizza. And, you know, it was like wonderful. So we're trying to do that as much as possible. Let's just be in a real place together. And then out of that forge really meaningful community. So like the the small group that my wife and I lead, we met all of those folks at one of these park days that we do every month, you know, and uh, cause we have a young family. So um, again, it's not rocket science. It's something that many churches already do, but we found it really helpful. So all of the digital sort of expressions of our church are intended and designed to inform people of those more transformational spaces. Thank you, Jay. I, that's really helpful because I think what what I'm noticing in all of that is it moves us away from the information and the quickness of things into a slower rhythm, a slower pace. Even yeah. in terms of conversation, it's not just information <clears throat> gathering, but it's laughter mm-hmm. and watching a game together and shared experience. And I think that that's really what is missed in the digital spaces, um, or, or even with folks that are, um, zooming into a church on a regular basis, I think it it can be a very helpful tool if, if there is community that's engaged outside of that. But I, I definitely see the, the point of, of all of what you're doing and affirm that. And I think, thank you so much for the very practical ways in which I think this can really help some pastors begin to think through it, especially coming out because it feels like as things are getting back to some kind of normal, see, we're trying to figure out like, okay, what things did we need to, to, what do we need to stop doing? What do we need to start doing more of? And it feels like even in our context, so much of it is just time together um, yeah. and talking to pastors all over the country in the last few months, that, that seems to be the most important thing. Just, yeah. Can we go to a soccer game and hang out with a bunch of people and just enjoy physical presence with one another? Yeah. Um, all right. So looking at your book, first of all, I, I think your your pastor titles are really preached. Like they're just awesome. They have great. You did a really nice job on the words. Um, but gentleness instead of outrage, self-control instead of reckless indulgement, uh, peace instead of contempt. And one that really stood out to me was faithfulness instead of forgetfulness. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, <clears throat> there's a lot to say. I, you know, I, one of the things I, I talk about is, uh, this happens with a lot of ideas, but there's a sort of weird neo-gnosticism that's taken hold in the modern world where we separate, you know, like, for example, our intentions with our practice. So you will often hear people say like, well, I had good intentions, you know, yes, I did that terrible thing, but I had good intentions 
or more often, uh, more commonly, yeah, you're right. Like I didn't show up at that thing that was really important for you, but I intended to, I, I had good intentions. Life just got busy. And we say those things as if my internal life sort of stands on its own and is valid even when it is detached or in opposition to my external life. Wow. And I think that's happened with faithfulness. So, you know, this idea of faithfulness in the Bible, in the Greek, it's the word pistis, and a lot has been written about this, and there's actually some debate among scholarship about the best definition for the word. Some say trust. Uh, some say loyalty or allegiance, you know, and it kind of goes back and forth. Obviously, it does mean some form of fidelity. But w- what I'm trying to get at here is people think, like, for example, you know, um, I was in a counseling meeting years ago, and I've had these conversations several times, actually, sadly, over the years. I was in a counseling meeting where uh, a, hus- a husband, had cheated on his wife. And I'm in a counseling meeting with both of them. And the wife at some point with tears in her eyes says to me, I still have faith that he loves me, even though he was unfaithful. I thought, huh, what an interesting thought. Now, I'm, what I'm not saying is that the husband can't possibly love her because he was unfaithful. That, no, he, he very well could. I just thought the sentence was interesting. (laughs) I have faith that he loves me, even though he was unfaithful. What she meant was, um, I have an internal belief about his internal position or posture toward me, even though his external expression was Mm. in opposition to that internal reality. So faithfulness biblically doesn't make that distinction. There is no, there is no, this is a faithful person, but he acted unfaithfully. Like that doesn't exist in the Bible. Faith is just one thing. And primarily it is, it is the outward expression of one's fidelity to God or to a person. That's it. There's no like, oh, no, I'm, I'm a faithful person, even though I'm cheating on my spouse. That doesn't fit in the biblical paradigm. It's just, oh, you're cheating on your spouse. You're unfaithful. You're an unfaithful person. That's just like what, what it is. And, you know, it's interesting to me because this plays out in real ways. People will say, I'm a person of faith, and then their life displays no real faith in God. You know, it's just sort of like mm-hmm. what they mean is I've made the intellectual assent, and I have the intellectual belief that there is a God who loves me. But my life doesn't embody that reality. And that distinction is really strange. And I think it's embedded in some ways to forgetfulness. And, you know, this is the one chapter where um, people might misunderstand what I mean. I think some people might see it as a book about analog and in the digital age. And they might think like, oh, he's talking about how we're on the Internet too much. So I forget where my keys are. And that, that's not what I mean by forgetfulness. <laughs> I mean, much deeper than that, in the digital age, because of, in particular, the sort of di- the digital divides of social media, 
we're forgetting that these are like real humans on the other side of this mm. black screen. Like we're forgetting that there's Imago Day embedded in these people, yeah. these little bots and avatars were, were, um, you know, sort of interacting with and fidelity to God demands that we treat every human as an image bearer of God. Like mm. that's what it, that's one of the key elements of being faithful to God and faithful to the humans in our midst. And I think that in the digital age, um, that stuff is being undone. And it's easy enough for me to say, well, I'm a faithful person, but everything about my expression of that faith is like something else, you know? Um, so there's a lot more to say about that, but, but that's a part of what I'm trying to get at in, in that chapter. Yeah. Yeah, we've, I'm sure we've all had that experience in our church of the person who is, when they're there on Sundays, they are just lovely and gracious and kind, but you see what they're doing on Facebook and you go, oh my goodness, this is this the same person? And it kind of raises the question of which is the real, which is the real person? Like, when are they being most genuine? Um, one of the things that, that I've seen increasingly being talked about in terms of digital media is how um how things like instagram how how constantly seeing snapshots very limited glimpses into other people's lives is making us discontent with our own and i know as a pastor i have felt keenly that temptation towards comparison of what's going on in another pastor's life or the the beautiful family that never seems to have problems in the growing church and all that. Uh, I'm wondering for you, because uh, you do talk about this in the book, but why is why is comparison so dangerous? And here's the here's my real question. How do we avoid it, uh, especially when we want to be open to learning from others and celebrating yeah. what God is doing in other places, how do I, how do I remain open to the lives of others and seeing what's going on without falling into that trap of comparison? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, first of all, I think most people listening can probably relate to exactly what you just said. <laughs> I, I know mm -hmm. I can. And so my hope is that, this is a really accessible point. Hmm. Um, what I juxtapose in the book is joy with comparison, which I hmm. don't think we typically, I, most people don't make that juxtaposition, you know? Hmm. Um, but the reason I do it is because uh, there's a lot to say about it. But one of the things that, that's been so helpful for me, Eugene Peterson makes a distinction about joy. Um, and uh, the way he distinguishes it, he says that joy, I'm paraphrasing him here, but he says that joy is able to rest in the past and borrow from the future, whereas pleasure can do nothing but sit in the present. So pleasure is sort of just that unrelenting pursuit of what feels good right now. Um, but joy, Biblical joy is the ability to rest in the past, the fact that God has been faithful through generations. He's been faithful in my life, and he's been faithful through, to his people 
through all of the ups and downs of history. And it's able to borrow from the future. The fact that we know, biblically speaking, this story is headed somewhere. It's headed to mm. Revelation 21, when John has this incredible vision of a new heavens and a new earth, and God is seated on the throne, and he says, I'm making everything new. He says, I'm dwelling with humans now, and on that day, there's no more tears, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more death, right? Okay, so if those two things are true, God has been faithful through generations, and a day is coming when all wrongs will be made right, mm -hmm. and God will rule and reign, then we can have joy in the midst of whatever is happening in the here and now. But often, what the comparison trap does is it, it puts us on what the psychologist Michael Asink calls the, the hedonic treadmill, which is this treadmill of constantly pursuing pleasure, hedonism. And it's a treadmill because on a treadmill, you're constantly running, but you'd never get anywhere. You're like constantly in motion, but you never arrive. And that's how pleasure works. It's this momentary spark, but then the, the moment you have it, it's gone. And you got to keep chasing the next spark. And what an exhausting way to live. And that's what comparison does to mm. us. It's like the moment I get over the fact that this pastor has a bigger church than me and his building looks more beautiful than mine, and he has more Instagram followers and has written more books or whatever. The moment I finally am like, okay, I'm over that. Well, there's like the next thing I'm comparing to. You know, I, I've actually found this in my life. Um, I and I, I'm just being very vulnerable and honest here. Um, after I started writing books that other humans actually started reading. <laughs> which was a whole thing for me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Um, I thought that I would be like, oh, all those struggles I had with comparing myself and like, why aren't I writing books? That'll be gone. And I'll just be a mature Christian who's like, oh, settled and whatever, you know? No way. Like all, the only thing that changed was I was now tempted to compare it to other people. That's all. Like you just mm. shift your focus. It's like, you know, maybe you plant a church and you planted with 50 people and then you go on Instagram and the church plant across town has 200 people. And that's all you're fixated on, man. Like how come my church doesn't have 200 and then God blesses mm -hmm. and God does a work and you got 300 people at your church plant now. And you think like, okay, now I'll be okay. It's like, no, you won't. You're just going to go on Instagram and follow the church plant that has 500 people. And now you're just going to be like, Oh, why don't I have, five? it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. And then one day you're leading a church that has 10,000 people and you think you're feeling good, but no, you're just going to look at Andy Stanley and go, why don't we have 20,000 <laughs> like him? Like it yeah. just goes on and yeah. on. And yeah. that never goes away. It's like one of the lies of the enemy and it robs us of joy because we're just mm. fixated on the present, on the here and now we're fixated on pleasure. When what God has to offer us is joy, like real mm deep abiding joy that's based mm. not on the comparison game, but on the fact that God has been faithful in our lives and through history. And God is writing a story that's, that's headed somewhere where the numbers and the Instagram followers and the Twitter followers and the book deals and the speaking engagements, all of that stuff is just like such a big giant joke compared to where the story is headed new heavens, mm -hmm. new earth, you know, and that's where we find joy. 
um, instead Amen. of comparison. So there yeah. you go. Amen. Amen is right. It's it's interesting. My my 15 year old daughter all over her wall has this written in I don't know 15 different <laughs> blocks, letters, whatever. But just that idea of comparison is the thief of joy, mm. and it's been really interesting to see someone who grew up in who grew up with the digital age like in the digital age not you know not like it was this new thing but it's just been part of her whole life yeah and how she recognizes that as a 15 year old and it just mm. it makes me it makes me grieve for the folks for pastors specifically who are wrestling with that today right like yeah. they might even be listening to this podcast like dude Doug and Bob have it so together they're talking with this awesome <laughs> author named Jay and it must be amazing and you know here like my family's like dragging beds downstairs. Like there's no recording <laughs> studio. There's nothing like that. It's like, yeah. this, but I think it's, it's just funny how, uh, and I heard Mike Yacanelli, I don't know if you guys remember Mike Yacanelli. He yeah. was a young guy, but he, he said something. He said, he said the greatest sin that pastors struggle with is they compare what they know to be true about themselves to what they don't know to be true about someone else. Mm, yeah, and, so and I good. was a 21 year old punk kid uh, who didn't know anything and that has stuck with me because I think there's a truth there. And there's also a grace that it helps us to, uh, to, to enter into, right? Because you and I both know when you hit that church of 300, 400, there's 300, 400 problems that you don't yeah. even realize you have as a church with 50 people or 75 yeah. people. Um, but Jay, this has been just always a pleasure mm. to be with you and to, to hear. I think you gave us a so ton good. of stuff to chew on and so much practical wisdom um, and I will just make a plug if you if you wanted to or maybe this is just good parenting advice, but if you wanted to not uh, give your kids an iPad for a five hour flight, just go Benadryl. Uh, it's there like the second best <laughs> idea. That's right. That's right. I've also been recommended oh. like a little dab of whiskey on the on the lower level. Oh. So I don't know. try that next time, I guess. Oh, but man. Can you leave us with a benediction? Yeah, would love to. First of all, thank you both, Doug, Bob, so much for, for having me on. Um, a joy to, to talk with you. Yes, I, I would be honored to, to leave us with a benediction for every pastor, church leader, follower of, of Jesus listening. My prayer and my hope for you is that God, by his spirit, in the slow and steady way in which he always seems to move, that he might cultivate in you fruit, fruit that does not come quickly, but fruit that is long-lasting, that takes over the entirety of your being in such a way that your very life becomes a gift to the world as it expresses the love and the joy and the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control uh, that God gifts us with for his glory and for our good. Amen. 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 Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of MMP. Our passion is to serve, partner with, and equip hungry pastors and kingdom leaders just like you. 
Have you signed up for the Kairos Partnerships free weekly newsletter called Five Things in Five Minutes? It's free and it's delivered to your inbox every Tuesday morning. It provides valuable thoughts, links, questions, and quotes to equip you for the ministry and leadership journey. And the entire thing can be read in five minutes or less. To sign up, log on to kairospartnership.org slash 5T5M. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.